Welcome to Music for Life, enhancing the Armstrong concert experience. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. In today's episode, we will set aside our usual discussion of the repertoire to be performed on concerts here at Armstrong. Instead, we will discuss a book that was recently explored on one of our sister programs on KPCG, Dennis Leap's Just the Best Literature. For two of his episodes, Mr. Leap conversed with me about the musical aspects of Thad Carhart's memoir, The Piano Shop on the Left Bank. In one of those shows, I told him that Music for Life would devote an episode to exploring the music discussed in the book. So in this episode, we will explore some of the major repertoire mentioned in this piece of literature. So stick around as we explore the soundtrack to a book today on Music for Life. Welcome to our second episode of the third season of Music for Life. In the season's first show, I introduced you to the brand new format that we will follow this year, mainly discussing each upcoming concert at Armstrong Auditorium and each piece of music to be performed in depth. Hence the new tagline for our program, Enhancing the Armstrong Concert Experience. Well, today's program will be a special episode, a diversion already from that new format, but it will still serve as a support to the work being done on the Armstrong campus, if not directly relating to the concert series itself. See, just before our summer break, I appeared on Just the Best Literature, a sister program of ours here on kpcg.fm. Its host, Dennis Leap, and I discussed many of the musical components of a book titled The Piano Shop on the Left Bank, talking about piano piano lessons, and other observations a musician like me would have when reading Thad Carhart's journey of rediscovering his love for piano in his adult years. Now, one thing we could not do on that program was play music that is mentioned in the book, which would not have fit the format of Mr. Leap's show anyway, but it does fit the format of this show. So this episode, though not supporting the concert series program on our campus specifically, will support and complement those earlier shows I did with Mr. Leap. I'd encourage you to find those discussions on SoundCloud or on iTunes to learn more about Carhartt's book. But here's a brief summary of the book as beautifully worded on the book's back cover. It says, Walking his two young children to school every morning, Thad Carhartt passes an unassuming little storefront in his Paris neighborhood. Intrigued by its simple sign, Deforged Pianos, he enters only to have his way barred by the shop's imperious owner. Unable to stifle his curiosity, he finally lands the proper introduction, and a world previously hidden is brought into view. Luke, the atelier's master, proves an indispensable guide to the history and art of the piano. Intertwined with the story of a musical friendship are reflections on how pianos work, their glorious history, and stories of the people who care for them, from amateur pianists to the craftsmen who make the mechanism sing. The piano shop on the left bank is at once a beguiling portrait of a Paris not found on any map and a tender account of the awakening of a lost childhood passion. To explore the music he mentions in this book, the majority of it is piano music. He does make passing references to an aria from Mozart's opera Don Giovanni, though he doesn't say which one. He mentions the famous drinking song from La Traviata by Verdi, as well as Wagner's opera Siegfried, Stravinsky's ballet The Rite of Spring, and Bobby Darin's hit tune Mac the Knife. 
All these are pretty much passing references, while every other mention of a piece of music is a piano piece, and we will keep the exploration of this book's soundtrack limited to this genre. As we do with most of our programs, I like to go in historical order, starting with the works from the Baroque era, then moving into the Classical era, then the Romantic era, and finally the Impressionist and Modern era. In the Baroque era, the major figure of this time period was Johann Sebastian Bach, especially when it comes to keyboard music. Though the piano as we know it today did not exist yet, keyboard instruments like harpsichords and clavichords placed similar demands on the artist's hands and fingers. Therefore, the repertoire written by these composers for these precursors to the piano are still played on our modern pianos. From J.S. Bach's output, Carhartt mentions two-part inventions, his epic Goldberg variations, and on four occasions he mentions the well-tempered clavier. The well-tempered clavier was a collection of two-movement piano pieces written in every major and minor tonality, showcasing the tuning system of the keyboard instruments of the day. It's hard to explain in a non-technical way, but in short, instrument technicians figured out the math— basically an approximation for every string in the instrument, to make it so that keyboard instruments could play in all 12 major keys and all 12 minor keys, and it all sound pretty much in tune. So Bach wrote 24 preludes and fugues, a set in each key, to show the versatility of this technology. This collection of pieces was known as the Well-Tempered Clavier, named after a keyboard's ability to be tuned or tempered in such a way. Carhartt actually describes this volume in his book. On page 147, he writes, While Johann Sebastian Bach was not the first to propose that keyboard instruments be tempered across their entire range, he was among the ardent proponents of a more balanced temperament. His comprehensive set of preludes and fugues, the well-tempered clavier, while a masterpiece in its own right, is also the best-known early example of music made on the well-tempered scale of a keyboard instrument in a wide variety of styles, keys, and dynamic ranges. Bach liked this idea so much that he did it twice. He wrote a whole other set of preludes and fugues in the 24 major and minor keys, so with there being two volumes, musicians usually have to refer to Bach's well-tempered clavier by specifying book one or book two. So I think you can understand, with the existence of this kind of work, it's impossible to discuss the history of the piano or piano literature without discussing these epic volumes of keyboard music. The most famous prelude and fugue is one we've played on this program before, and one Thad Carhart mentions in the book, the first prelude of book one. On page 23, he talks about, quote, my hesitant rendition of the first prelude from Bach's The Well-Tempered Clavier, unquote. He gives two other references to The Well-Tempered Clavier, one that isn't specific. He's talking about a masterclass he attended as an adult piano student. A masterclass, by the way, is where a teacher gives a public lesson to a few students, which has a variety of benefits for the student, the audience, and even the teacher. Anyhow, on page 211, he says about the class, My friend Claire went first. She played several preludes and fugues from Johann Sebastian Bach's The Well-Tempered Clavier. So we don't know exactly which preludes or fugues Claire played. 
back on page 70, Carhartt makes another reference to a Bach prelude. He's discussing one of his early explorations of this mysterious shop in this Parisian neighborhood. He had already seen the front of the shop, but now he was allowed to wander back while the owner was handling a customer and while another tuner was working in the shop. He says, I decided that it was time to drift farther back in the shadows, out of the commotion in the middle of the large room, so I headed to the other far corner. Hidden in the farthest reach of the room was a small mahogany grand, a dark and simple shimmel. On its music rest was the well-tempered clavier, open to prelude number nine. The fall board, that's the part that covers the keys, was open. The keys shone. Everything seemed to whisper, play. But it was impossible to do so with the tuning underway. I wondered if Luke had been playing the Bach. And thus began the author's temptation to get back into piano playing as an adult. Looking at the Bach on the piano and saying it was Prelude 9, I can only guess that he means Prelude number 9 from Book 1. And here is a recording by Friedrich Gulda. Friedrich Gulda was the pianist in that recording of the Prelude No. 9 in E Major from the Well-Tempered Clavier, Volume 1, by Johann Sebastian Bach. The Well-Tempered Clavier is a set of keyboard works by J.S. Bach that Thad Carhart mentions on numerous occasions in his memoirs, The Piano Shop on the Left Bank. Moving into Carhartt's references from the classical era, we have a couple of nonspecific references to Mozart piano sonatas and references to Beethoven's piano sonatas on a few occasions. In Beethoven's case, he mentions specific works. Before we get to one of those, though, he twice mentions a Mozart fantasy. Though there might be a couple he's referring to, I would be pretty certain that the nonspecific reference to a Mozart fantasy would have to be the most famous one and the most played one, the Fantasia in D minor, Kirchel number 397. One of those references is early in the book. He was considering the price of one of the shop's pianos. He had gone home and measured his apartment and came back ready to try it out for himself. On page 31, he writes, This time at the atelier, I did bring sheet music, and Luke nodded approvingly when he saw me set it on the music stand. I've never been comfortable playing in front of others, but somehow this was different. His presence seemed encouraging as we listened together to the particular voice of this instrument among so many other pianos.
I played for perhaps ten minutes, pieces I knew reasonably well and could listen to while I sight-read. Some of Beethoven's bagatelles, the most famous of those is for Elise, I might add, a few of Schumann's pieces for children, an early Mozart fantasy. And that's a quote from Carhart's book. Later, when finally taking lessons again as an adult, he writes on page 117, eventually Anna, that's his teacher then, proposed that I try some of the Beethoven bagatelles and a fantasy of Mozart's that intrigued me with its strange dissonances. When I worked on them, I had for the first time a real sense of trying to understand music that was challenging, profound, and beautiful. Mozart and Beethoven wrote much that was far more difficult, much that I'll never play, but these pieces nonetheless seemed challenging and serious, and the rewards they gave me were commensurate with my efforts. I was no longer a beginner. Here's a recording of what fantasy I believe him to be talking about. This is pianist Mitsuko Uchida. That was Mozart's most well-known fantasia or fantasy for the piano, the one in D minor. It was performed there by Mitsuko Uchida, and that is one of the pieces Thad Carhart references on a couple of occasions in his masterful memoir, The Piano Shop on the Left Bank. As I mentioned before we heard that, Carhart made some nonspecific references also to Mozart's sonatas for the piano. In one of those references, he writes on page 104, When one of Mozart's piano sonatas is played today on a perfectly restored Viennese period instrument, Although we hear the same tones as they did in the late 18th century, we cannot hear them the same way. He's talking about the development and increasing volume of the piano as we know it, which occurred after Mozart, just after the classical era. These developments were contemporary with another composer of the era, a later period from his output, Ludwig von Beethoven. Beethoven was one of the giants of the piano repertoire, writing 32 sonatas for the instrument that could be considered the meat and potatoes of the piano literature. Fittingly, Carhart doesn't make just passing references to Beethoven, nor even generic references to a sonata. He specifically mentions three in particular— 
Two are mentioned as the repertoire he heard at various master classes, one being the early Patetique Sonata in C minor, the second movement of which was made famous by the legendary Karl Haas and his beloved radio program. Another sonata he mentions hearing at a master class is the meditative Sonata No. 30 in E major, Opus 109. But a third specific reference to a Beethoven sonata is one that is used to help describe the development of the piano itself. It's another one of Beethoven's later sonatas, Sonata Number 29, Opus 106, known as the Hammerklavier, or more technically, Grosse Sonata for das Hammerklavier. Not only is it one of the most challenging of Beethoven's sonatas, it explores the sheer power of this developing instrument. Carhart writes about it on page 98. Descending into deafness, he, Beethoven, imagined music unlike anything his contemporaries were writing. The Hammerklavier sonata from this period still strikes us as a revelation of the piano's extreme limits of power and expressiveness. The longest of Beethoven's 32 piano sonatas, the Hammerklavier is generally acknowledged to be his most difficult and his most visionary composition for the keyboard, a technical and poetic tour de force whose fugue finale still startles listeners to this day. This is one of Carhart's more detailed descriptions in the book of any piece of piano literature, so we definitely need to hear some of this, even though because of its length we don't have time to hear it all. Let's hear a little of the last movement, which contains that startling fugue. This is the last four minutes of a nearly 12-minute finale movement. This is a recording by Vladimir Ashkenazi.
You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. Today's episode I'm calling a literature soundtrack as we explore some of the repertoire mentioned in Thad Carhart's memoir, The Piano Shop on the Left Bank. That was Ludwig von Beethoven's Hammerklavier Sonata, some of the final movement performed by Vladimir Ashkenazi. Carhart gives a detailed description of this epic work by Beethoven and how it embodies the developing power of piano technology at the time. This leads us into the Romantic era of our historical chronology as we discuss piano repertoire mentioned in Carhart's book. The Romantic era is when the piano became more the instrument we know today in terms of what it could accomplish mechanically. The instrument itself became hugely popular, which Carhart explains beautifully in the book. And so it stands to reason that there are a great number of Romantic era composers who write for this instrument. The giant of these composers, and one who wrote almost exclusively for the piano, is Frédéric Chopin. And Carhart mentions him numerous times throughout the book. On page 101, he writes, More than any other composers, Chopin's music directly addresses the central paradox of the piano, how to make a percussion instrument sing. This is the basic riddle that any serious pianist faces. Three times he mentions a ballade by Chopin usually in the context of this being one of the harder kinds of pieces to master. On page 59, when discussing how teachers usually ordered their recitals, he said, The order of performance was severely hierarchical, beginners first, with the finale reserved for the advanced students who could play a Chopin ballade or a Mozart sonata for assembled parents. The implication is that Mozart sonatas and Chopin's ballades are reserved for the more mature players of a teacher's studio, and as a piano teacher, I would generally agree with that. Part of what impressed him about Anna, the piano teacher he found in adulthood, was that she could play these kinds of pieces. On page 192, he writes, Anna sat down at the keyboard at her piano that had just been rescued by a technician and played some scales, then a passage from a Chopin ballade. The Beckstein sounded like the beautiful instrument that it was. He also mentions the Chopin ballades earlier in the book. Remember when he was in the back room of the atelier where he had seen the Bach prelude opened on one of the pianos? He talks about finally playing one of those pianos since the technician was now done tuning. This is from page 72. Not wanting to draw attention with all of the others in the atelier, I depressed the soft pedal and tried a Schubert waltz. The worn ivory keys felt strange at first, but soon their subtle ridges and indentations seemed forgiving, even welcoming to my fingers. Although I was playing as softly as possible, the timbre of each note was clear and absolutely even from bass to treble. Most surprisingly, the action was so sensitive that I found I could still modulate each note considerably, from soft to extra soft. I was enraptured, transported by the faint but perfectly limpid tones that came forth from the century-old marvel. My smattering of Schubert left me frustrated, though, since I kept playing the same familiar pieces by heart whenever I was left to improvise. Wouldn't it be wonderful, I asked myself, to be able to sit down at a piano as fine as this one and to play a Chopin ballade off the cuff? Yes, Chopin ballades are difficult and utterly satisfying in terms of all the different colors one can draw out of a piano. We don't know which ballades he is referencing. Chopin wrote four, but I don't believe he intended to mean that just one fit this description. Any one of these would be representative of Chopin's output and the range of possibilities that the piano of his day contained. 
The first ballad is probably the most played by students, from my experience, but here is perhaps my favorite of the four, ballad number three, performed in this recording by Murray Pariah.
That was Frederick Chopin's Ballade No. 3, performed by Murray Pariah. Chopin's four ballades are mentioned in Thad Carhart's memoir, The Piano Shop on the Left Bank, usually in the context of the more advanced piano repertoire, and works that embody Chopin's output in terms of how he gave the piano a unique voice in the 19th century. Carhart understandably mentions Chopin a lot. Other pieces by Chopin he specifically mentions throughout are the Polonaises, the stately three-beat-per-bar Polish dance that Chopin made popular by writing unique compositions in this meter for the piano. He also mentions two specific ones in this book. One is the more famous heroic Polonaise, which I played on this show before. This is one of the pieces that Carhart says he imagined himself playing flawlessly on one of the pianos he was trying out. He also discusses the Italian brand of piano known as Fazioli and meeting its inventor and namesake. Carhart got to try one of these powerful pianos, and on pages 246 and 247, he describes the experience. I played some fortissimo chords, that means really loud chords, with the sustain pedal, and it sounded like an orchestra was in the room with us. And then I stopped, bowled over by its tremendous power and embarrassed that my playing was not equal to its might. But Fazioli wanted him to keep playing, he says, so he writes, I felt a sharp sense of frustration for what might have been. If only I could launch into a late Beethoven sonata with style and grace, give a confident and passionate reading of a score worthy of this matchless piano, then discuss its merits intelligently with the man who built it. I told Fazioli that I was unprepared to play a piece, but that I had loved the feel and the resonance of his concert grand. I would much rather hear a serious musician at the keyboard, I said, and asked him to play. He hesitated for a moment, but when I got up from the bench, he took my place and graciously let me off the hook. Playing so large a piano definitely takes some getting used to, especially at full volume, he said. With that, he struck the keys with both hands in the opening bars of Chopin's Polonaise in C-sharp minor. The result was astounding. Here is that Chopin Polonaise, Opus 26, number 1, and performed in this recording by Arthur Rubinstein. Thank you. 
That was the Polonaise in C-sharp minor, opus 26, number one, by Frederick Chopin, performed by Arthur Rubinstein. In the piano shop on the left bank, author Thad Carhart discusses his journey of buying a piano and restarting lessons as an adult, as well as some of the history of this powerful instrument. So he therefore mentions Chopin a lot in this book, one of the great composers of piano literature, at the time when the instrument reached its height of development. But there are many 19th century composers who wrote magnificent piano repertoire, whom Carhart also mentions. He names Liszt and mentions a nonspecific sonata by Johannes Brahms, as well as a Brahms intermezzo that his teacher said was light years ahead of his level. He mentions the English composer Edward Elgar, who owned a piano where he inscribed in the soundboard the names of some of the pieces he composed at that piano. Carhart also mentions Mendelssohn's songs. Now, that's a term pianists would recognize for Mendelssohn's songs without words, because we wouldn't usually describe a piano piece as a song, a song you sing, a piece you play. So Mendelssohn's songs that he mentions are obviously those songs without words that Mendelssohn wrote so many of. As we've already read in a couple quotes, he talks about Schubert and his easier waltzes and other dances for the piano. We also heard a reference to Schumann's piano pieces for children. Schumann was a great composer of piano music in the 19th century. Carhart says Schumann was one of Anna's favorite composers, Anna being Carhart's adulthood piano teacher, you might recall. Specifically, Carhart mentions Schumann's Chrysleriana Suite, as well as a suite called Forest Scenes. He lists a couple of movements from this suite, particularly the most famous movement, The Prophet Bird, which I actually played on a previous episode of Music for Life, where we talked about composers imitating birds in their music. You can check out episode 23 on iTunes or SoundCloud for more on that piece. But there is a touching reference to another of Schumann's pieces, his well-known short piece, Traumerei. On page 165 to 166, he writes, Luke described his visit years before to the home of a widow to appraise the piano she wanted to sell, a beautiful playel grand. In order to test the action and the sound, he began to play Schumann's Traumerei, only to have his hostess burst into tears. I'm sorry, she sobbed. My husband used to play that for me. Music and memory, Carhart asks, can there be a stronger amalgam weighing on the heart? Let's hear that piece. Here is pianist Christoph Eschenbach.
You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. Today's episode has been called A Literature Soundtrack, and in it we have explored some of the repertoire mentioned in Thad Carhart's memoir, The Piano Shop on the Left Bank. That was Christoph Eschenbach playing a piece by Robert Schumann, Traumerei, a famous piano piece that is referenced in Carhart's book. He mentions it in a touching scene where a widow burst into tears hearing that piece played as it was a piece her husband used to play for her. Schumann was one of the giants of the piano literature in the Romantic era, which is where we currently are in our discussion of the music referenced in Carhartt's book as we go chronologically through time. The Romantic era was when the piano literature exploded, and which is why I've played so much from it today. Moving into the 20th century, Carhartt mentions a handful of composers whom we would identify as either Impressionist or Modern composers, Igor Stravinsky, Bela Bartok, Enrique Granados, and Claude Debussy. If you recall from the discussion earlier, when piano innovator Paolo Fazioli himself played one of his pianos for Carhartt, he launched into the C-sharp minor polonaise by Chopin. He writes on page 247, He was obviously a gifted pianist, and he well knew what pieces showed his instrument to best advantage. He played part of a Mozart sonata, then some Schumann and a smattering of Liszt. Each sounded different, yet they all shared a purity of tone that was as sharp as faceted stone. I put one hand on the cabinet as he played, and the vibrations passed through me like a controlled earthquake. Next, he told me that he wanted to demonstrate one of the distinctive features of Fazioli Concert Grands, the fourth pedal that brings the hammers closer to the strings. This makes for a pianissimo, or a very soft, that is amazingly complex, since unlike the conventional soft pedal, which shifts the hammer to the side so it strikes only one string, it allows the hammer to hit all three strings per note in the treble range rather than just one. He began Debussy's Claire de Lune. And the statement of the theme in the upper range was not just soft, but unaccountably limpid and full of harmonics and overtones. Here is a recording of Claude Debussy's Claire de Lune, and I doubt this is performed on a fazioli with use of that fourth pedal, but here is a recording by Claudio Arau. We will end the program with this well-known and beloved example from the piano repertoire.
You have been listening to Music for Life, a production of KPCG 101.3 on the FM dial in Edmond, Oklahoma. From the Herbert W. Armstrong College campus, I'm Ryan Malone. Thanks for joining me.